I told the story of my transitioning from my stock picking responsibilities at The Fool in a May podcast a couple of months ago. It was a road less traveled in 10 and a half chapters. Well, chapter three of that podcast was entitled Two Fools. Ultimately, the two fools I'm talking about are, well, you, you're one, and me, I'm the other. Here we are together every week. Two fools. That was the reason for the chapter and the chapter's title. But I also told the story in that podcast of how much I'd enjoyed for the first time meeting an NFL head coach. And not just somebody so accomplished in the game of NFL American football, but also, yep, a fool with a capital F. Somebody who, just like you and me, makes his own investing decisions, uses the Motley Fool services, and side note, has done wonderfully because he has such a great mindset, as you'll see. But no, the main note is that he made a key move in his life to take over his finances, to quarterback his financial destiny, and is so eloquent talking about it. Well, I withheld the name of the coach from that podcast in respect of anonymity, but I'm very happy to tell you that he is Frank Reich, the head football coach of the Indianapolis Colts. And Frank is not only fine with us sharing that, He's on this week to share, to tell his story. And what a remarkable story it is. Frank Reich, Two Fools, only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to this week's Rule Breaker Investing. Earlier this year, we started a new series telling their stories, volumes one, two, and three. You get to meet people like Matt Argusinger, Jason Moser, Aaron Bush, Emily Flippin, and many others. In fact, the third one was just a month ago today, telling their stories. And I realized that the framework we've been using for that series would be awfully fun to use outside of me just interviewing Motley Fool Analysts, which has been so much fun to do. And we will keep doing that. But I thought, you know, telling the story of your life in, let's say, 10 sentences or less, talking through the stock graph of your life, and what are the three key moments that have made you the investor that you are today? I could use that for other people, people external to our company, maybe even people very well known like this week's podcast guest. And so, thus was born, well, this week's podcast, Two Fools. I'm joined, as I mentioned at the top, by NFL head coach Frank Reich of the Indianapolis Colts. And we're going to be talking through Frank's life and his investing life. And I'm so delighted to share this conversation with you because, Frank, well, some of you will know him and you know what a remarkable life story he has thus far. But for many of you who may not know that much about Frank or American football, I can tell you that you're going to hear stories that are very inspirational. Somebody who's been at the highest highs, some of the lowest lows, at least professionally, and yet somebody who's done such a fine job, not just with his professional life, but with his life. And that's what we're really going to learn today and his investing life as well. And so thus was born this week's podcast, and I'm excited to share this interview with you. I will mention up front, just before we start with Frank, that next week's Rule Breaker Investing Podcast, we're going to be talking about venture capital investing, something I haven't touched on that often in the past. Although, if you talk about the most rule breakery ways to approach the markets, venture capital is right up there. And I'm going to be joined by one of my favorite people on planet Earth. That's right, 
Olin Douglas, the longtime chief financial officer of The Motley Fool, but for the last few years, the head of Motley Fool Ventures. Olin and I will be answering some of your questions, which we'll solicit over Twitter in advance. Yep, just tweet us out at RBI Podcast. Any questions you have about venture capital investing, we look forward to. It'll be a, a bit of a primer for many, but also the wisdom and yes, capital F, fight the conventional wisdom, foolishness of Olin Douglas and his take to help us all think smarter, happier, and richer about venture capital investing. That's next week. So that's next week. We're living in this week. So let me now welcome my new friend, my new best friend, Frank Reich, head football coach of the Indianapolis Colts. Frank, a delight to have you join me. Two fools. No doubt, two fools. And uh, I I appreciate the opportunity to join you, David. Thanks for having me on. I know it's been a really busy month. It's about to get a lot busier for you as the season is oncoming. But this is a time to just relax, step back, and reflect a little bit. And we need those times in our lives. And I love doing that with this podcast. And I love having well-known people who've lived amazing lives on to share. That makes me smarter, happier, and richer. And that's what you're going to help us do in the hour ahead, Frank. So thank you so much again. And you already know the format. The very first of our three pieces is the story of your life in 10 sentences or less. Now, Frank, I think this is modesty that becomes you. This is the humility that typifies Frank Reich, I think. But you only are bringing eight sentences. Let's get started. So without further ado, Frank Reich, tell us your story. It's a simple story, David. Raised in Lebanon, Pennsylvania, home of Lebanon Baloney. <laughs> That's right, Lebanon Baloney. Son of school teachers and coaches. Uh, tremendous parents, you know, who taught me both by word and by example uh, in parenting the powerful combination of unconditional love as a parent, but yet the responsibility of hard work. And uh, that was mm. just invaluable. Um, then I move on to college life, uh, where I went to the University of Maryland. Uh, the University of Maryland introduced me to the big city, to big time football, and to big business. I, I went there as a finance major. I'm a real numbers guy, kind of envisioned, mm. always had the dream to play football. But if that didn't work out, would have been a banker or stockbroker uh, along that lines. But Uh, My college football experience included being on a team that had the largest comeback in college football history at that time, uh, a great stage of of my journey. Um, And then in 1986, uh, I married the most amazing person I know, my best friend, Linda, a hometown girl, but not my high school sweetheart, just a very close friend in high school. (laughs) And we've been now married for 35 years and with three daughters who are all incredibly strong women and are on the right path, all married and uh, two grandchildren to date. Um, Then as I move into my uh, professional life, that began in 1985 when I was drafted by the Buffalo Bills. Um, During those years, I became part of a team that was the only team in NFL history to play in four consecutive Super Bowls, uh, an incredible experience uh, with some incredible teammates. This span uh, with the Buffalo Bills also brought me uh, the experience of playing on a team that had the greatest comeback in NFL history um, against the Houston Oilers, uh, January 3rd, 1993, a tremendous experience. But the most significant day of my life, uh, have to step back a second, go to when I was a senior in college, 
when I made a commitment just personally, you know, going through some hard times and um, as sometimes college students do really recommitted my life that at that point spiritually and said that I really needed to put that at the center of my life. Um, and since that decision in, in college, really as a professional in my marriage, as a parent, everything flows from who I am as a Christian. And that, that's a, that's a real big deal to me. And I would hope that anybody that knows my story knows how important that is. Um, there's been two quotes that have been on my desk since 1985. Um, these are life quotes to me. <laughs> I, I've tried to embody these. I've aspired to these. The first one says, no man becomes suddenly different than his habits and cherished thought. Um, and then the second one says, the sweat of discipline and the hard work of repetition always precedes the thrill of spontaneity in any pursuit of life. Uh, those two quotes have stood the test of time for me, and I think long before me, and I think they'll stand the test long after me. Uh, and when I think back, just kind of beginning to summarize the biggest lessons that I've learned in life is this, is that it's really about the people and it's about the process. Um, surrender the results. Don't focus so much on the results. Rather, focus on the people Surround yourself with great people. Be willing to learn. Be willing to grow. Do the hard work. Yes, we're always striving for the best results, but by actually doing it counterintuitively and focusing on the people, bringing out the best in others, bringing out the best in yourself, and then working hard day in and day out doing it, that will bring the best possible results that that we want. And I've certainly experienced that. And then, uh, lastly. I would just say um, any summary of my story would be it's it's an ongoing story. So there's a continued vision for my life. And I'd like to that to center around two words. I'm at a stage in life at 59, enjoying um, being with a great organization surrounded by great people. And two words that I've talked to God, people in our organization are about are magnanimity and humility. Um, a brief word about those two words. Magnanimity is the habit of striving for great things, while humility is the habit of serving others. Magnanimity is the thirst to lead a full and intense life, while humility is the thirst to love and sacrifice for others. Lastly, magnanimity affirms our own personal dignity and greatness, while, of course, humility affirms the dignity and greatness of others. Mm. Wonderful. Thank you, Frank. That was, um, you, you, you put a lot out there, and I, and I want to just start right in. Um, we're we're going to move to the stock graph of your life in just a little bit, but I have some inevitable follow-ups uh, on the eight sentences you just shared with us. So the first question I have for you is, your parents, obviously, our parents, if they're doing a good job, mean so much to us, not just as kids, but as as adults looking back. Clearly, yours did a wonderful job for you, Frank. Was there a, a, a phrase, a catchphrase from your dad or your mom that really typifies them that has emblazoned itself on your memory? No doubt. Uh, my dad, before I would walk out the door um, to almost anything, sporting contest, school, going out on a Friday night with friends, um, it was simply this. Hey, Frank, 
keep the pressure on. You know, just keep <laughs> keep the pressure on. And what that was shorthand for, David, was, you know, don't let your guard down. Always be pushing yourself. Always be on guard. Always wow. be alert. You know, if it's football, if it's a football game and you're riding the high of three great victories or you happen to have played good football, then keep the pressure on. Don't let it down. If you're coming off of a couple tough losses, you know, keep the pressure on. Don't give up. If it's you know, out in a setting somewhere where you need, you know, you can apply that just about anywhere. And that was a saying that just still rings in my ear to this day. And he was somebody, I assume, who was embodying that himself. I know that he was an NFL player. Am I right about that? That is right. Well, he was drafted. Um, He chose, that was in 1955, 56. He was the captain of Penn State at the time. Lenny Moore, Rosie Greer, or some of the names mm. uh, that he played with. Remember this, uh, yep. Yeah, he was drafted by the Philadelphia Eagles, and um, rather than go there and play for a contract of $3,500 a year, he chose to go be a school teacher um, and raise a family. I think his salary at that time, I remember him telling me, it was like $1,700 a year or $1,800 a year. And um, he just wanted to settle down. You know, married, married my mom, and they just wanted to settle down and have children. And um, obviously a different era back then. Mm. Let's move forward to uh, young adulthood. You met Linda. You mentioned she was not your high school sweetheart. Did you have a high school sweetheart? And what did Linda think of her? <laughs> well, great question. Linda and I were in the same grade. <laughs> and, uh, and when I say best of friends, I mean, like, we were like brother and sister. So for sure, wow. she had, we both dated and um, we all hung out together. Uh, we just all hung out together. And then it really was after high school. And, you know, we were both in college and we're kind of between dating people. And we were just getting together like we would get together because we were such good friends. And one night we just looked at each other and it was kind of like, are you feeling what I'm feeling? You know, should we actually go out on a date? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I mean, I think we like each other pretty much. So, you know, may, maybe we should try this out. And uh, so we did. We started dating and uh, we dated for really the rest of my years of college and then got married after my rookie season in the NFL. Wow. No man becomes suddenly different than his habits and cherished thoughts. Could you give me an example from your life, either your own life or observing others that really brings that quote home for us? Yeah, first of all, that, that quote that no man becomes suddenly different from his habits and cherished thought, that's a quote from Joshua Chamberlain, a Civil War general. And he was getting, you know, his, his men were getting ready to go into battle. And um, this is, of course, is a very famous story, but um, he's getting ready to go into battle. And he's basically telling his men, hey, we, we can determine the manner of man we will be whenever and wherever the hour strikes that calls men to noble action. And then he completes that quote by saying, no man will become suddenly different. So, um, you know, for me, this quote typifies so many things. Um, it can be everything from as, as little as uh, school, you know, when you're in school and studying um, preparing for tests, but certainly for me, I mostly think of my football career. And those are the battles that I have found myself in as far as professionally um, and how, 
you know, hey, I want to know, we want to know the kind of team we're going to be or the player I'm going to be. If I want to know how I'm going to respond to adversity or how am I going to respond when things are going well, well, I, we, I can know that. All I have to do is look at, you know, look at what I've done and what am I building on. So um, I just think it's a very important quote that, um, you know, you can't, you can't hide, we can't hide who we are. So it really places, it goes back to the lesson that I said, the, the emphasis on the process, on becoming the kind of person. Yeah, I'm never the person that I want to be, but I'm always becoming the, you know, striving to become the person I want to be. And so that's just the summation of my values or my habits. So try to build those habits in, in a way that will reflect and stand and, and have me ready when they when they're called upon whenever and wherever they're mm. called to come out um so i've just found that i've leaned on that all the time and as a coach i i, I talk about that all the time to the players that i coach uh, i talk about that to our children um, constantly those are those are things um that are easy to spell out and easy to see mm. Well said, Frank. And the second quote, sweat of discipline and the hard work of repetition always precedes the thrill of spontaneity in any pursuit of life. I love that. I, all I want to say, and then we'll keep moving about that, is that you've shown that in the preparation that you brought for this podcast, because I shared with you the elements we'd be going through, and you did a lot of work on them, and you submitted them all ahead of time to me, and I can see basically how hard you would be to compete against if I were another <laughs> NFL head coach, because you are a hardworking guy and you are prepared. And you probably never get out-prepared by the opponent. You might lose for other reasons, but I doubt it's because somebody prepared more than you did. Yeah, I think that, you know, when you think about the sweat of discipline and the hard work of repetition, you know, it's about, you know, not getting bored with the mundane, with the tedious things, you know, going back to the fundamentals and the basics all the time. And a lot of times in professional sports, uh, we see our favorite athlete do something phenomenal. It just you know, makes our jaw drop to the floor. Like, how did he do that? Or how did she do that? That looked like the most spontaneous play. Like, and, and I just said to myself, none of it's very little of mm. it's spontaneous. It's all been rehearsed. It's all yeah. been rehearsed. Um, we, we know when we were kids and if, whether it was, you were into sports or if you were played an instrument, um, we all, I think envisioned ourselves making that last second shot or throwing that touchdown pass or playing in front of a big crowd, the piano or the violin or something. Um, and there are times where there's the thrill of spontaneity, the thrill of those moments that, that they're just not going to come any other way unless you've paid <laughs> your dues. I really believe that you got to pay your dues. And uh, that quote just always reminds me of that. Awesome. All right. Well, Frank, let's move on now to the stock graph of your life. Uh, and I, I, I talked you through it a little bit just by email. We just talked about, I mean, all of us have, whether we're 59, 55, or 15, usually we start in the lower left with, with our graph because we're born. And I hope it goes up from there for most of us. I hope most of these graphs for our fellow human beings as we try to help as many humans uh, thrive uh, worldwide, which is a big part of, of my vision and my hope for our future. Uh, we hope that you go lower left to upper right with your graph, which is what every consultant is always going to show you. They're going to show you graphs 
Start in the lower left, go to the upper right. Every stock market graph of any meaningful duration is going to go lower left to upper right. And yet, there are some highs and some lows. And that's that's fun to talk about, too. And I've always said to each of my guests, share whatever you want to. Uh, we don't put any pressure on you to share all the best times, not the worst times, or vice versa. It's whatever you'd like to share, Frank, right? So let's start. Talk me through a little bit the stock graph of your life. Where do you want to start? Yeah, well, this was a fun exercise. And, uh, you know, when you sent it in the email that, hey, I really encourage you to actually don't just think about it, but to draw it out. And so when I was doing it, I was doing it on my phone because I, I was at a spot where I didn't have a uh, writing utensil. With, so I was just using my phone on a note thing. And so it wasn't as precise as I wanted it to be, but that was probably a good thing. And, it's, <laughs> and so on this stock graph of my life, um, you know, it, it, it goes gradually up and there's some ups and downs in there, but they're smaller where it's pretty normal upbringing. But then I get to college and um, there's a there's a big dip in college, um, a big you know there's a big drop, and that was of course because I had when I got to Maryland, I ended up uh, being Boomer Esiason's backup, who was a, a very accomplished college quarterback and then a very accomplished NFL quarterback. Boomer was a year older than me, and mm. um, so he he graduates and he's playing in the NFL now. It's my senior year. And long story short, four games into my senior year, I had an injury that looked like it could end my season. It could end my career. And, um, you know, just thought it was all going to come tumbling down. And that's what that first big dip is. And um, and the low point there was um, I was able to recover four weeks later. um, And I walked into my coach's office and told him, hey, I'm fit, I'm ready to play. And he told me that, sorry, Frank, you're the guy who stepped in for you is playing pretty well right now, and I don't want to make another change at quarterback. Mm. And so that was kind of a huge, a huge low point. Um, But then, of course, that next week, now we see the graph has a sharp uptick. Thank you for that (laughs) sharp uptick. Because... What that little line, when I was drawing it with my finger, I could actually feel the joy of that uh, of that movement right there when we went down to play the University of Miami, the defending national champions. Bernie Kosar was their quarterback at the time. And our team, I didn't, I wasn't starting, as I just told you, but our team played pretty poorly in the first half. It was 31 to nothing. We were losing. And so the coach put me in the second half. And our team came back and we won 42 to 40. So that was a, a, a V-shaped recovery right there. Um, and, and, and then had a few games after that that continued to kind of make my stock rise, if you will, in the NFL. So, Frank, that was Stan Gelbaugh, I think, was the guy who'd stepped in after your injury. Stan had a professional career himself. In fact, I think you shared a team or two maybe with him. He played for the Bills at one time anyway. That's right. And that's why I I really, I mean, I could argue with the coach because he had told me that it was team policy that a starter never loses his job because of injury. But because of the nature of the quarterback position, he just, he was, he didn't want to make the change. And to your point, David, Stan went, he was playing well and uh, he was playing well and he did continue to play well and go on and have an NFL career. But yeah, that that's, that's that part of the graph. It reminds us how much in a sense, we're all 
sometimes victims or sometimes beneficiaries of circumstance. There was really, by any right, you he had completely earned the right to play starting quarterback at least your senior year, probably years before that, but Boomer aside and being as great as he was and you being just one year younger, you didn't have that opportunity. And so that feels so unfair that that happened to you. And I know you mentioned earlier during your eight sentences that this was a time in your life where you decided to make a, a spiritual commitment. Uh, was it triggered by this moment, by this event, Frank? And was that part of your zag up? There's no doubt it was, David. And um, as it all, as you would anticipate, right, where it's all connected, all life, and I, I believe. And so um, I probably was at a point in my life where I put all my eggs in the basket of the NFL. This was my life. It was, I had an obsession with football and with my dream to play in the NFL that was that really had me with my priorities out of order. And so I, I think this difficult time, this trial that I went through personally helped me reprioritize what was most important in my life and what it would mean for that to truly be at the center of that. And and this was important to me and how that would not only just give me a piece to get through that, but it would give me a piece and a strength that would still allow me to, you know, my best years ahead. Hmm. And was there, was there a moment where the heavens opened, Frank? Do you remember a single moment where you decided, and maybe it was a low moment or maybe you're already on the way back, but, or, or was it more of a, a gradual transition from somebody? No, was, yeah, no, it's a great question. And uh, it, for me, uh, and everybody has a different story, but for me, it, there was a moment I, and searching for answers. And I had a friend at college who had been kind of trying to be a, trying to disciple me, trying to coach me spiritually. And, and I was listening to him, but maybe not as much as I should have. Um, and then I went to, uh, in an effort looking for that piece, I went to church one Sunday and I ended up leaving and kind of going back to my dorm room. And that's kind of where just really fell down on my knees and just prayed to God that, you know, to forgive me that I just, that I had messed everything, messed everything up. Now I'm a, you know, a 20 year, 21 year old man. What that meant was different than messing something else up, but it was important and it was meaningful. And there was a sense where I felt like I needed to surrender my life and confess that to God. And, and, um, and so that was a very significant time. Thank you for sharing that. I'm sure we'll touch base on that a little later in the stock graph because you had a transition after football before returning to football that I'm sure we'll touch on. But before we proceed forward in the stock graph, I do want to just double underline the date was November 10th, 1984. Frank came in for the second half. The score was 31 nothing, and uh, and remarkably, 42-40 the final. At the time, it was the greatest comeback in NCAA football history. I think, I guess, since since we say at the time, I guess that's since been surmounted. Somebody came back from more than 31 down in the second half. But um, do want to make sure I flag that because, Frank, you had another similar moment as a professional that I'm sure we'll talk about shortly. So for those, and, and about a quarter of our audience are international. They may not even know the rules or care about American football. A lot of people care about the other football, which is, I guess, the most popular sport in the world, even though they still decide games, really consequential ones, by PKs, which is a crime. But anyway, <laughs> uh, Frank, <laughs> but Frank, uh, I, I do want to make sure that you know a lot of people who don't know much about football recognize how remarkable 
that college moment was to, to be down 31 nothing in the second half, coming off the bench and do what you did. And we're going to hear a little bit more something like that in, in a bit. But let me pass the ball back to you, Frank Reich. Where are you going to take us next here on the stock graph of your life? So after that college experience, we, we go on to finish that year. It's a good year. Finish the year out strong. Drafted to the NFL, 1985 draft, third round Buffalo Bills. And um, shortly after that, actually the next year, Jim Kelly came there from the USFL. Jim, of course, a, a star quarterback, Hall of Fame now. I ended up being Jim's backup. So mm-hmm. on this graph, you know, we got a couple of years. that were, The line's pretty flat, David. It's pretty flat. I mean, it was – there was nothing special going on as far as me personally, um, you know, as far as football and my career goes, but nothing terrible either. I, I was sitting the bench. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't playing. And Frank, if you're willing to share, did you get a signing bonus for being drafted in the third round in 1985 in the NFL? And or what was your salary if, if you're if you're willing to divulge these numbers to us? Uh, absolutely, yeah. So in in 1985, I was the 57th player taken because um, there was only 28 teams back then. So mm-hmm. that would be second round today, but nonetheless. Uh, and yep. I was the I was the uh, second quarterback taken. Randall Cunningham being the first quarterback taken. And for mm. my re- and for my signing bonus, I got a $200,000 signing bonus on a f- five-year contract. So it was essentially 40,000 a year, um, and then. Uh, my first salary as a rookie in the NFL was 125000 So things have changed slightly. No, no doubt about it. And I feel like any era of athlete always feels like people got paid more after they did because they did, in fact. The popularity of sports worldwide just seems to talk about stock graphs, just seems to keep going up. Also, there is some inflation adjustment there. So 1985 numbers, $200,000. That's, that's nothing to sneeze at. You must have. You must have been pretty happy. Was that a, was that a life changer for you financially? Yeah, it was a life changer, and um, it was a big time life changer. I came from you know I came from very modest uh, family upbringing. I told you school teachers, but uh, growing up we had a we were part of a pretty catastrophic flood that we lost everything, and so we oh. we lived our how we lived our lives growing up always in catch up mode. You know, always financially we live in paycheck. You know, I live paycheck to paycheck my whole life and could tell you a lot of stories about how my dad, um, you know, we had, we had to heat the whole house with firewood, you know, and he, and he would take the fans from air hockey. He'd find old air hockey games and nail them to the roof of the ceiling and turn them on so that the wood from the fireplace would take, would heat the whole house, just try to save a few dollars, wow. to make ends meet. Um, we were driving a Chrysler Plymouth Fury three that was, you know, got 12 miles to the gallon and it was an older car, but somehow he, he did the math that he could buy a new Ford Escort that got 30 some miles to the gallon. And we were going to save $50 a month. We still make the car payment, but then still save another $50 in gas, uh, you know, to be able to help make ends meet. And so really had to, you know, we really grew up, um, where we had to learn how to do those kind of things. And I never, you know, I never felt like mm. we wanted or needed anything. I mean, it was always good food on the table and the so on and so forth. But yeah, when I made it to the NFL and got a $200,000 signing bonus, um, that was, it was life changing for sure. 
And did you squirrel that money away? Did uh, Were you married at the time? Was Linda taking yeah. over as bookkeeper? Or how, what did you do with that? Yeah, well, we, we were engaged. Um, so I bought a car, bought a 1985 Subaru. Um, I can't remember which kind it was. Um, and then we, <laughs> we bought a condo. Um, and I, I still remember this. We paid 56000 in Buffalo, New York, where I was drafted. We paid $56,000 for th- for an 1800 square foot, three bedroom condo. And, uh, and then sold it two years later for 70,000. And that was my first go at ever making money on an investment. Um, although we were paying ridiculous interest rate, I had no, I was so naive. I, I didn't, I think interest rates were 13% at the time. I, I think I remember is what we were paying on our mortgage wow. or something like that. Um, but yeah, I had no clue what I was doing. Um, financially early on because not having money grow growing up. I, I don't know. I just felt like it took me a little bit to learn that. Yeah. I think what I learned about money growing up was how to be frugal. I don't remember my parents ever talking to me about investing or you know, that kind of thing. I, I didn't know how to budget. You know, we did learn how to budget, but um, we never really talked much about making money, you know, and how to or compound interest or, or those kind of things. It was always just having enough to get by. Wonderful. And we're definitely going to pick up on some financial aspects later, especially the three key moments making you the investor you are today, Frank. But we'll park that and we'll return to your graph where it's going sideways because you're a backup quarterback in the NFL. And the bad news for you at this time, I guess, is that the person ahead of you, uh, was a star with longevity. And so if you're hoping to get the ball yourself, it's tough when Jim Kelly is starting. Yeah. And so, and then there's a dip there on that graph. And you're right, David, that is why well, it's kind of flat there. And then that dip is, um, you know, I had played in preseason, but preseason games without going into it too much for, you know, it's not always a great reflection. There's a lot of unique dynamics. <laughs> and, Agreed. Uh, and I was going to get cut from the team. And, uh, so the general manager called me in and it's a really long story, but I'll just cut to the chase and, and say that, um, he, he, we, he redid my contract and I ended up taking a salary cut to be paid even lower to Mm. be paid lower just to stay with the team. And, um, and so, but that turned out to be the best decision I've ever made in my life. So here's, it was a really good point where, I could have allowed him to cut me and maybe another team had picked me up at a higher rate and I could have gone somewhere else, get, get out from under the shadows of Jim Kelly um, and go somewhere else. But I can't explain it at the time. My, my wife, Linda, and I went back. We talked about it. We prayed about it. And for some reason, we felt compelled to take his offer to take a pay cut. You know, it mm-hmm. was, hey, I'll cut you and you can take your chances out there in the NFL world or take the pay cut and stay here with us. And, um, and so we took the pay cut and that was Mm. the best decision. That was the best decision we ever made. That's a remarkable thing to say. And was this, this is the general manager uh, of the team that you're talking with? Yeah. And who, uh, Bill Polian, who is like a football father to me. And there's, there's nowhere where I've been in my career as a player or coach that he hasn't been at the center of it. Um, because he was really, in this particular instance, this one detail I'll, I'll share, um, you know, he was going to bat for me, you know, where 
the owner had kind of grown an affinity for one of the other quarterbacks and just thought, you know, almost like the college situation, you know, where the, the owner had an affinity for one of the other guys who looked good in preseason games and um, where Bill Polian believed in me. So the only way for him to keep me on the team was to con- was for me to take a pay cut um, because mm. everybody, all the owners like when you're willing to take a pay cut. Mm. All right. Well, Frank, the good news is because now this is an audio medium. This is a podcast, so no one else can see what you and I are seeing. We're doing our best to illustrate it with our words, but I'm happy to say that the graph starts to go up from there. Yeah, so um, that that year was the first year Jim Kelly got hurt, and and I had a chance to come in and play some significant time, and and our team, you know, I played good football. Our team was successful. Um, that that where that graph goes up, that's during those four Super Bowl run, uh, that four Super Bowls in a row. But then you see David where that real big spike is there, that next spike, which I know our our listeners can't see, but. You got this gradual uptick, and then you see a, a pretty significant surge up. That was in year three of that four-year run that uh, represented what you were alluding to earlier, where in a playoff game, um, you know, we're playing the Houston Oilers, and Jim Kelly, our star quarterback, had been hurt in that game. And so I had to start the game. Unlike the college game where we came back and won, I came off the bench in the second half, this game I started and we were losing 35 to three early in the second half or early in the third quarter, and then somehow turned it around and were able to come back and win 41 to 38. And that still still does stand as the greatest comeback in NFL history. And it is a remarkable story. I'm pretty sure I was watching it back then. I was 27 and I, I watched the NFL playoffs every year pretty much. And, just just to get back there once again, Frank, uh, the final NFL game of the 1992 regular season, your team, the Buffalo Bills, took on the Houston Oilers. I believe the final score was 27-3. I think Jim Kelly may have gotten hurt there. And so you've just lost 27-3, but you've made the playoffs. Good news. The very next game, you're going to be playing the exact team that just beat you 27-3 the week before. And that foe was the Houston Oilers, and they were up 35-3 to early in the third quarter. It gives me goosebumps a little bit to think about it. Anybody who's an NFL fan, you can, I'm sure John Facenda NFL Films can tell you the story once again. This, this is one of those stories that sh- should be lionized, because who doesn't, especially in America, who doesn't love a great comeback? So, Frank, here you are. Do, do, you, do you remember any moments from that game that you want to share? Oh, so many moments, David. You know, like you said, because we played them the week before and lost 27 to 3, and now we're losing 35 to 3. So, right, we can pretty quickly do the math and say that in the span of four consecutive quarters, they were beating us 62 to 6. So maybe you can appreciate that they let their guards down. Like they thought they had this one wrapped up, they had our number. They, you know, This is a huge, so there's two huge life lessons here for me. Um, First of all, three, keep the pressure on, right? Keep the pressure on. But, you know, (laughs) like number two is every play matters. Like it were 35 to three. Who ever would have thought those three points that we scored in the first half would ever 
have any significance. Um, but without ah, that, good you know, point. without that one little thing in the first half, that one little bit of success, then our efforts at the end are just going to fall a little bit short. So it just reminds me that every play is important. You know, every, every day, even in, you know, even in my life when I'm, if it's not football, if it's something else and, and it seems like it's insurmountable and it seems like it doesn't mean much, just keep, just keep plugging away. You don't know when that's going to come back to help you down the road. So, you know, very significant. And then secondly, you know, that it wasn't that everybody said, well, you know, they let up. I, yeah, they probably did let up a little bit, but you know, we just played it one <laughs> play at a time. You know, you can't, you can't make up 32 points, you know, in one series, you, you have to stay patient. You have to stay patient and let the big plays come just make, execute the little things. And then when they make their mistakes, I remember one last, one last thing that I'll say about it. So it's 35 to three, we go down and score. Now it's 35 to 10. Then we, we have a surprise onside kick. Um, so we get the ball back three plays later, we score again. Now it's 35 to 17. Then we intercept Now we're going back down to score again. And it's a fourth and five. It's a fourth and five. We're on about the 20 yard line or so. And you could make an argument to kick a field goal. And, you know, we called a timeout and went over the sidelines with Marv Levy and we talked it through and we said, we're going for it. You know, we're, if we're going to come back and win this game, we're, we're going to need these points. And mm. we went for it and threw a touchdown pass on fourth and five from the 20. And um, that was a huge deal in that game, that fourth down, that fourth down conversion. So, so many good memories. And then the one other noteworthy point I, I like to say is, you know, as the quarterback of that team, a lot of people have pointed towards my, you know, the efforts and how I played. But, you know, when you're down by that much, the defense had to play great. The special teams had to play great. The coaches had to be on it. So true. I mean, it's not a one-man show. It's it's a team effort. And so, man, I look back on all those lessons all the time. I mean, all the time. And that was in 1993. And when I think about how many times I've had the opportunity to share that with a group, any kind of a group, young kids at a sports camp, at a church camp, at a business seminar. I, I, David, I've shared this story, those life, le- and, and there's so many more. You know, there's so many more that yeah. go with it, but um, I, th- that's real life. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why sports is so popular, you know, and because it's just competition and it brings out these highs and lows, these emotional highs and lows. You get to see the importance of executing the little details, right? And then you get to see the big plays, and it all orchestrates together. And um, I think that's why there's such an affinity for, for sports in general. That's really well put. And I think it's just so remarkable that a man who, as an athlete, is perhaps best known for being a backup for long periods of time, which he never wanted to be, who doesn't want to start? And yet, the greatest comeback in NCAA history, football at the time, was from that backup quarterback, and the, still the standing greatest comeback in NFL history in the playoffs in a wild card game, 
also from that same backup quarterback. And so, Frank, there's there's really good reason why I think you're an inspirational speaker. I think you get hired to uh, in the offseason perhaps to address people and why you've also led churches because I, I can't really think of a, a more fairy tale story or one that you can pull more inspirational lines out of and, and that you've actually lived it and done it uh, makes you a symbol for others of possibility and hope. And I, I'm sure you feel that. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And I'll always tell people, David, this is a very important part of the story. So if I'm having a chance to talk to somebody and they're talking about the greatest comeback in NFL history, I'll remind them that a month later, we're playing in Super Bowl 27. Now, and Jim Kippa, Jim Kelly had come back from his injury, started the Super Bowl. We're playing the Cowboys early in the first quarter or early in the second quarter. He gets hurt. He hurts his same knee. We're losing 17 to 7. I step onto the field. Now, remind, remember, a month ago, we just had the greatest comeback in NFL. So I'm thinking 10 points is nothing. We're going to come back. We're going to annihilate the Cowboys. Um, it's going to be, like you said, it's going to take this storybook finale. Fairy to the, it's fairy tale to the very end. We're winning the Super Bowl. I'm holding the Super Bowl trophy. I'm going to Disney. Uh, the whole thing. <laughs> There's only one problem. I ended up setting the record, the Super Bowl record for the most fumbles in a Super Bowl game. And so I love telling this. I love telling this part of the story because here in the course of one month, I went from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows professionally. I understand there's many, many more important things than football in the world. You know, when it's your livelihood, it's it's important. And so and where you go from being the star or the hero to being humiliated in front of the biggest TV audience that watches anything mm. in the course of a year. And you're the and and it's and it's and you're the big reason why we lost. So. Um, yeah, I mean, it's navigating through those highs and lows, having the perseverance, having the confidence um, and the humility to, you know, not point fingers, to take responsibility for what you did, to learn and grow from it, not to get too overwhelmed with the how hard it is to go through that, but just to set your eyes on the next step, on the next day, on the next play, on the next game, and and keep pressing on. Mm, and keep the pressure on. And you've done pretty well at that, not just in football. We're about to move into a coaching career in a little bit, but but also as an investor. And I think a lot of us hearing right now can, can relate, especially if we're playing, to me, the only game that counts, which is the long game, then you're going to go through times where you watch Amazon go, as it once did for me, from three to 95, and then two years later, back to seven. It hurts a lot when you have a 30-bagger that you basically just watch almost vanish seemingly overnight, and that's just a couple of years of one stock. So again, as investors, I think a lot of us can both relate to and admire the kind of persistence and resilience that you're talking about, in this case, well, with sports, but for a lot of us, with our investing. That story of Amazon, and what I was thinking when you were saying that is that Right. It ultimately comes down to, you know, being invested in the is there the right leadership? Is there the right company? Are they do they have 
And so I go back to that. No man becomes suddenly different from their habit. It's the same company I, I invested. I'm the same player when I when I set the record for the most fumbles in a Super Bowl game. I'm fundamentally the same player that I was when when we had the greatest comeback in NFL history. So circumstantially and some things, there was a little bit of lack of execution and boom, there was a quick drop in the in the in the worth of the of my play. But it, what changed? What, what it was just a couple fumbles here or there, and those aren't going to continue. There's no reason to think that those kind of things are going to continue. And I, I've also seen that, like you said, David, in my investing life, um, not just in companies, but in people and um, things as well. Absolutely, and we'll get more into that in a little bit. But you know, losing to win is one of my favorite themes because as somebody who's picked stocks for most of his life, I'm 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 so aware of how many bad mistakes that I've made. And I think you have to take risks in order to win. But if you take risks, you're going to lose a lot. Otherwise, they weren't risks. And so I, I think a lot of us, again, can hear that losing to win theme. So, wow, talk about high highs and low lows. And that was just really in one season, Frank. The year was, well, 1993. That means we've got something like 28 years from then till now. So let's let's move it forward a little bit. What else do you want to say about your NFL career? Well, you know, I played uh, 10 years with the Bills, and then I had four more seasons, one with the Carolina Panthers that next season. That was kind of a cool note. You see a little bit of a high uptick there in the graph. Wasn't necessarily the most successful season as far as wins and losses, but it was a, an expansion team. We, we had a chance to start a new NFL team, and, and I was the first starting quarterback on that team, and so that was a great experience. And I believe you, you'll always hold the record for having thrown the very first touchdown pass for that franchise, the Carolina Panthers. Do you remember who caught that ball? I do. Uh, Pete Metzler. So yeah, the first touchdown pass in Carolina Panthers history. No one can ever take that one away from you. That's uh, <laughs> the Pete Metzler's. But yeah, so then I went from there to the New York Jets. Now you can see the graph going dramatically down. We were 1-15 in 15 that year. Um, I played a good bit that Ooh. year because Neil O'Donnell was our starting quarterback and he got hurt. So very, very He difficult. was a Maryland guy, right? Another Maryland guy. Yes, he was. But another difficult year as far as uh, wins and losses. But Again, I go back to the people in the process, what we talked about earlier, really made some quality friends there, some great teammates, um, you know, and then and then played my last two years in the NFL with the Detroit Lions. And they're pretty innocuous. Um, there are not many highs or lows in those two years, um, but they were good years. I was reunited with my college coach, Bobby Ross, who was now coaching there. So um, good years. And. And the other neat thing about the last two years in the NFL was now my children. Um, uh, my last year in the NFL was 1998. So my oldest daughter was now eight. The second one was six and then two. So they were able to come to games and know that their dad played football. That was all. That was pretty fun back then. But then, you know, then I got out of. Uh, so then I retired after 14 seasons. Uh, it's a long career in the NFL. And um, do you remember a final moment? Was there a trigger where you're like, I'm done? Yeah, I, I had hurt my shoulder, David, and, and my throwing shoulder, and I knew that it required surgery. And, um, you know, I, I, we were having to move back and forth. And I remember leaving Detroit after the 14th season and my wife, Linda, saying to me, 
um, because she had been following me around all these cities and we were going back and forth where, you know, had to change the school for the kids because they're in school now. Mm. It just got very complicated. And, um, you know, and after that last game, she's like in Detroit after the 14th season, she's like, hey, I'll support you 100 percent if you want to keep playing. But I can't. I, we got to settle down with the kids. And I was like, yeah, I'm done. You know, I'm done. So it just became it physically. I was 38 years old. You know, so yeah. um, I'm not Tom Brady. So uh, <laughs> no my, one is. <laughs> yeah, my my body was uh, my body was ready to move on. So finishing that career uh, had an opportunity to go into coaching right away. Um, I had actually four different offers to go be an NFL coach, and I turned each one of those offers down. Um, because I knew that to be an NFL coach was like a hundred hours a week job. And I had three young children and, you know, I just wasn't ready to make that kind of commitment being away from them. And I, had pl- I didn't make millions and millions of dollars as we've talked about the finances back then were, they were good. I mean, I made a lot of money, but relatively speaking, but, um, and it saved some of it. Um, so I'd be fine for a while. But I couldn't, I wasn't independently wealthy or anything like that. So I was going to have to, my wife and I had planned it out. Hey, if I could just find a job making seventy-five dollars to $100,000 a year, plus what we saved, I'd probably, we could probably live the life we wanted to live. And um, so, the, so I said no to those coaching jobs. And it also provided me the opportunity. Yeah, it, it, it provided me the opportunity because I wanted to be, at my daughter's swim meets, I wanted to be able to help them with their homework. Um, yeah, I wanted to be able to do those things. And, and thankfully, the, an NFL playing career had afforded me the ability to make that decision to say no to a coaching career at that time. And that was just because the priority was on my family um, and not just I love football, but um, I was still able to stay involved in football by doing camps with kids and my brother was a college coach and I helped him out a little bit. Um, but I also, David wanted to do something else and I took a step into full-time ministry. Um, I went to seminary, got a seminary degree, um, was traveling the country, doing a lot of speaking at churches, really trying to talk about making the connection as a former football player. How do you connect faith and life? you know, your vocation for me, that was football. So I would go to places and talk about as a Christian athlete, what does that mean? And so, um, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that part of my life. I've gone to seminary. I've learned things and had experiences that still stay with me to this day. Didn't you end up Frank being the head of a church? Yeah. So two things, I went to seminary and I ended up becoming president of the seminary where I was, where I got my degree. Um, and I did, I did that for three <laughs> that years. That can't happen very often. <laughs> well, no. And it was only because the man who hired me was an incredible man. And he saw something, you know, he was willing to take a chance and he believed in me. He believed in me. And when he asked me to be the president of the seminary, I laughed. I said, you know, that wasn't something I grew up thinking I was going to be. And, um, and I didn't think I was qualified. And I told him that I'm not qualified to be the president of seminary, but he saw something different. He saw, he saw some things that he thought would, that would work. And so I committed three years to him and I said, let's give this 
a three year run and see how it was. And it was great. I loved, loved all of it. But at the end of the day, I just knew it wasn't ultimately what my calling was. And then I stepped out of that role as the president of the seminary. And then I pastored a church, uh, kind of served as an interim pastor of a church for about two years, a little less than two years. Um, Felt like in many ways I was prepared for that, doing a lot of speaking. But pastoring is different than speaking. And uh, Mm. more than anything, David, I, I just think I was led away from that in a positive regard that when I would go out speaking all over the world about connecting faith and vocation, the message was you don't have to be in full-time ministry to have your faith be something important in your life. You can, it can be important to you as a football player, as a coach, as a fireman, as a school teacher. So how do you live that out in those arenas? And so when I stepped back into football, it was just a natural progression for me to, you know, get into coaching, which is something that I always wanted to do. My girls were, and here's the key point. When I got back into coaching, I had put six years of I've logged in six years when my girls were young of doing homework with them, being at all their events, picking them up from school, dropping them off, all those things. But now it was time if I was going to get into coaching, I was going to have to take that step and go. And so in 2006, I started to make that by doing an internship with the Colts. And And I want to just flag that there, Frank, because when you and I had coffee earlier this year, that really jumped out to me. That you, having left the game when you could have taken maybe a head coaching job or at least a significant assistant job coming right out of retirement, uh, you went to the church. Then as you come back to football, you entered, I believe, that's the lowest level, right? You were you were an intern for the Indianapolis Colts. No, that's right. And and that's fine. I knew, And I knew that when I said no to those jobs after I retired, I didn't, I knew what that was going to mean, but that was just a choice I was willing to make for my family. And I, I wouldn't change that anytime. I mean, that was the best. That was a great decision. You bet. But, but it did mean that I, you know, so I served as an intern. They still didn't give me a job. So then I volunteered, I volunteered because there wasn't any openings. So then I, so then I volunteered and I said, listen, you don't have to pay me. I'll just, let me just be around. Let me see if I can earn your, you know, wow. let me see if I can earn it. So stuck around for six more months doing that, then did another internship at the next training camp. And then finally an opening came and, uh, and was hired. Yeah. When that, when that opening finally came, it was now it was going to be quality control. So that's a paid position, but it's the lowest of the paid positions. Uh, but that also mm-hmm. put me in the room with Peyton Manning because I was also the assistant quarterback coach. And uh, Jim Caldwell and Tony, Tony Dungy was the head coach. Jim Caldwell was the quarterback coach. And so uh, they gave me a great opportunity. Uh, you know, I'm now I'm in the meeting room with Peyton Manning. And this is where it all the fire just started to get ignited all over again. We're arriving near the end of your stock graph. Your life's going to keep going, and I'm excited to see where you go from here, Frank. But I see kind of a dip and then a big jump and then a little bit of a dip and then rising to an all-time high where we are right now. Can you just talk us through through that briefly? Yeah, the, the dip is, so I, I coach with the Colts for a few years, and then um, our whole coaching staff gets fired. I, I go to San Diego. Um, I eventually ended up in San Diego as the offensive coordinator. That was a dream. I, I wanted to be an offensive coordinator. Wow. Did that for a couple of years, 
but we had a bad year and I, and I, and I was fired. You know, I was fired as the offensive coordinator, and that's where that that graph just drops to an all-time low. I, I thought my coaching, mm. for any aspirations of a head coaching job, I thought were um, were gone. And um, but you know, just kind of stuck with it. Try to work hard and be the right person. Uh, take the high road. You know, I felt like certainly in my mind it was certain things were unjustified about the firing, but. I also learned that I had to take ownership for the things that I did have control over and that I could have done better. And I had to learn from those. And I think I did. And then where you see that graph go back up pretty sharply there as I got hired by the, by the Philadelphia Eagles to be the offensive coordinator there. And, and then we won this and two years later, we won that Super Bowl, And that was, um, that was a new high right there. And really that graph right there maybe shouldn't, dip down at all it should almost be more a little bit more level if i had to draw that again <laughs> and, and just a slightly increase up you know maybe you come down a little bit off that high winning mm-hmm. the super bowl but certainly the and then i came here to the indianapolis colts as the head coach and uh this is my fourth year now and it's just been a solid rise there's some, been some ups and downs along the way but a solid rise and so that graph, I'm going to say, goes right into July of 2021. That's where we are right now. This is the point in time where we're having this conversation. I do want to talk about um, being the comeback kid once again, Frank. I was noticing that first year with the Colts in 2018, I think you all got off to a 1-5 and five start. Here's the new coach. He, he's won some and he's lost some. He's known high highs and low lows in his career. That probably didn't feel great, and yet, here, here, here we go again. 2018. From that point, the Colts finished 10 and six and made the AFC playoffs. So, Frank, you went something like nine and one in the latter half of your first season as a coach. Did that feel like another comeback? It did, man, but it was what was more satisfying, or satisfying in a different way, was it wasn't just one game, one day. It took the whole, took 10 weeks, and. Um, and just the effort by the team and the focus and the, you know, we had this mantra of 1% better every day and this mantra mm. of, of one and oh, you know, just one and oh. And those are all simple things that get used a lot in the sports world, but it just took on a life of its own and we all bought into it. And um, that was a mentality that helped carry us through. That's wonderful. You know, James Clear, the author of the book, Atomic Habits. I don't know if you've read that book, Frank, but the subtitle of the book is Tiny Changes, Remarkable Results. And he really is all about what is a 1% improvement. It doesn't need to be much. It's 1%, but those really add up over time. And I can see that you are a proponent of that same philosophy. Yeah, no doubt. And and a proponent of that book. I've, I've read that first chapter to our team. Usually every year, I'll pick out excerpts from that beginning chapter and talk about the British cycling team and and how they made their improvements with that that kind of mindset. It's a great book. And James himself with a, a little bit of a career in sports in the sense that he played college baseball. And there's an amazing story uh, that anybody who's read that book, and I highly recommend it. Of course, the Cliff's Notes would be you can listen to my Rule Breaker Investing podcast with James Clear, where he tells some of that story. But I'm so glad to know that that's been inspirational for you as well. Well, let's pause it right there, Frank. You have kindly consented to do a weekend extra where we're going to talk football, and I'm really looking forward to that. I've just got a few questions or thoughts for you, and I'd just love to hear. We'll talk some more about football. Maybe not even preview the season that's coming because enough other people are doing that. I just have some you know, analytics and a little bit of this kind of question as a longtime sports fan and a numbers guy myself. 
But now we're going to move to the final stage of our time together. And that's the three key moments that have made you the investor that you are today. So this is a little bit of a journey on its own, Frank. And while finances um, are part of all of our journeys, um, we're, we're pulling that out now. And we're just looking at that thread of your life. We heard about your first car that you bought or that you saved a lot of money, but maybe didn't know how to invest it as an athlete. I don't even know. We're about to find out. But this is our opportunity to realize that we are all investors. Every single person listening to us right now is an investor. If you didn't know that, switch on to it because every time you spend a dollar, whether it was for a stick of bubble gum or toward your 401k plan, you just made an investment. And in fact, if you think about time, we're investing all of our time as well. So we're all investors. And what I love about this series and having head coach Frank Reich with us this week is we get to hear the investor side of this celebrated coach and player. So Frank, let's start it right there. You have thought about it. The three key moments making you the investor that you are today. What was moment number one? Moment number one, David, was, I'm, I don't even know if I'm saying this right, but it was, it was really beginning to understand the difference between risk tolerance and kind of underperformance tolerance. Now, what do I mean by that? So and and see if this makes sense, and if it doesn't, please set me straight. <laughs> um, but I, I remember, I remember uh, an advisor telling me one time, Frank. Everybody thinks that they're well that they have more risk tolerance than they actually do. So, in other words, he would say, he would say to me, um, "Yeah, when you say, hey, can you stomach a thirty percent dip?'" in order to possibly reap a 30% gain. And everybody thinks about the gain and says, yeah, no. But then when they actually go through the 30% dip, they go to their advisor <laughs> and say, hey, what are you doing? I, I can't stomach this. Well, so um, so number one is, is it help? I wanted to understand my own as what I have really come to appreciate what you say. What is that level of risk that I am willing to take? You know, how much am I willing to see the portfolio go down or a company go down? So I just came to a point where I was so doing so poorly as an investor that I was giving my money to advisors, in some cases, trusted friends who were with very reputable companies, and I was underperforming the market with regularity. Like it seemed like I was really like I was an all-star at underperforming the market. And I somehow was tolerant of that for a really, really long time. And that's when I'm saying I had to understand the difference between risk tolerance and the tolerance of underperformance. And I just finally got to the point where I said, as you just alluded to earlier, I needed to take control of my own investing and understand what I was doing better. And, um, and so I started playing a virtual game. I remember I read the Motley Fool book uh, when it came out a long time ago, many years ago. 90s. In the 90s. And um, was inspired by that. I didn't know much about it at the time. But then I started playing the virtual game. And, and I started buying and selling stocks virtually. And I kept outperforming what the money managers. And of course, I, you know, I wasn't subscribing to Motley Fool at the time, so I didn't wasn't getting all the services. But I'd 
somehow, you know, I had enough recommendations that I was able to outperform the money managers. But I, I bet I went through this for 10 or 15 years. And, and then there was something just instinctively or intuitively inside me that said, I understand mutual funds. I know there's a place. But it didn't take me long to figure out what everybody says is true. Hey, just go index. If I'm going to go that route, just go with the index fund. So mm -hmm. I sure. went I went through a stage uh, of my life as an investor where I tried to beat the market by giving my money to advisors who were going to buy mutual funds and expect to beat the market by buying the best of the best funds. And that just never happened. It mm. just never ever happened anywhere close to near as consistently as I needed it to. And then I started looking for funds. And I can't even remember what the right word that, that didn't, that only had like 15 to 25 stocks. I'm like, those are the kind of funds that I want to be involved. Let me, let me, and then let me see what the company, this was kind of my gearing more towards the buying individual companies, but it just took me mm. way too, it took me way too long to get there. Um, so yeah, that, that was it. It was just understanding that this is not okay. It's, it's not okay for me to be 15 years of underperforming the market when I'm in high income earning years. And, and so I just said, I, I got to take control. Before we move on to key moment number two, Frank, let me just pause there for a sec because I might be stretching analogies here, but is it fair to say that they were kind of the starting quarterback, the financial elite, the people that you're working with, the suits. And am I hearing that once again, you came in off the bench as a backup quarterback and said, you know what? I need to take control of this portfolio. And once again, I think you created some wins. Uh, oh, no, I love that analogy. And uh, yeah, it was easy. I, I suppose it was easier because it was virtual. It was like I was doing it on the practice field and I wasn't actually having to invest my own money, but, but it helped it helped give me the confidence to take that step. Yeah. And really taking control of your portfolio, that really is kind of like taking a snap from center, calling signals and, uh, and executing plays. And uh, we'll talk about this on the weekend. I, I often think we want to remember the other 10 players, right? In, in a world that so often celebrates just the one player, which we'll talk about on the weekend, but, but it is very true. All of us with our money, we do kind of need to quarterback that or at least be comfortable as a backup quarterback, that we do have Jim Kelly or Boomer Azizen playing in front of us. Because if we yeah. don't, we're going to be really dissatisfied playing backup quarterback for a decade or more. Yeah, no, that, that's well said. And, and, we, and we don't have to, we're not being, we don't have to settle. That's not being greedy. This isn't about being greedy. This is about being a good steward. This is about, you know, really wanting the best for you and your family. And, um, and so, there's nothing wrong with um, what I had to learn. You know, I was almost loyal to a fault. Now, I wasn't mm. going to be the kind of person who was going to give my money to an advisor. And then if six months, if he didn't, you know, produce something outstanding, but you got yeah, You gave 10 or 15 years. Yeah. And so I think if I were talking to myself back then, I would just say, hey, let's set clear. What are re what's reasonable goals that you can give these people to hold them accountable? And what are the standards and what's the process going to look like? What's the accountability process going to look like? And I just think if I had done that, mm. um, if I had done that, I think I still would have underperformed the market for 
a lot of years, but I think it would have been about half as long as I did. And, um, and mm. as we know, if I could have, instead of 15 years, if I could have underperformed for only seven, I would have given me a chance to double my portfolio by just doing the normal right thing. So, but I really did, David, as you alluded to, I settled for mediocrity. I somehow, I, I thought this magical the mutual funds were this magical way to give me the diversity that I needed. But what what I didn't realize was that the cost of that was going to be the upside of the big wins. And ultimately, that was just going to be like an anchor pulling me down. Well, and I love your phrase, underperformance tolerance. I might borrow that one or use that one in future because there is a lot of emphasis on risk tolerance out there in the world, and rightly so. We all do need to know not just what we think a 30% drop would be, but actually to live through it yeah. and, uh, and and see if we can take it or not. But there's another form of tolerance that is less talked about, and that's tolerance of underperformance. And so, Frank, you just shared that it occurred for quite a while in your life, and it's frustrating. Those t- years we can never have back, but we're always looking forward, not back. Let's move on to key moment number two, Frank Reich, making you the investor you are today. Yeah, I would say number two was, now this was a number of years back, so um, I, I don't remember what was the first service that I subscribed to from Motley Fool. There was Stock Advisor, probably. So I don't remember the year, but it, it was a relatively short time that I was doing that, and I was slowly, and I was slowly starting to buy some of my own companies. So now I, I've gone from let me take control of my portfolio. I get in, I subscribe to Stock Advisor. I'm just dabbling, though. David, I'm just dabbling. You know, I'm new to this and I'm a little bit apprehensive. So, but I'm just dabbling. But then um, Motley Fool comes out with a, uh, with an advertising, a promotional deal that caught my eye. And your brother, Tom, I watched this whole presentation and said, this is going to be, you know, buy into this service. And I'm going to give you the recommendation that, that I really feel like this is the one stock if I had to pick for the next however many years. And it was NVIDIA. So if I remember correctly, it was at 20. And looking back, I wish I would have poured a whole lot into it, but (laughs) I I probably poured $10,000 into it, which was an immense amount of money for me at that point as an investor. I mean, I felt like I was taking a huge, the biggest risk I'd ever taken in my life. I was sweating every day of it. But then I watched that go from 20 to 80 David, I had never had an experience like this before. I bought a stock at 20 and it was now at 80. I, I mean, I've just gone 15 years of underperforming the market and, I'm, and, and it just opened my eyes to a whole new approach. Mm. And then, of course, I learned the other valuable lesson to that first big stock pick in NVIDIA was, of course, the phrase that I'm sure other people say it, but you made it famous. As far as I'm concerned, you've coined the phrase, winners win, you know, winners win. And of course, when I got to 80, I'm like, okay, I got to sell. I'm out of this thing. I just, I mean, I just mm. made, and, and I look back and I sold and, but that's just this equally important part of what I learned. So that first, so that second moment for me is the buying and selling of NVIDIA and winning on it in a major way. But also understanding, uh, understanding that if I really want to get the gains that are going to outproduce the market, it, that 
there is something true. There is a reason that all these mutual funds struggle to beat the market. Because even when you pick individual stocks, there's only a handful that are going to have those kind of returns that can boost your returns, that can give them the firepower that they need. But then you got to let those go. I mean, that, it would be, like in true. football, like in football terms, it's like give it to the hot hand, feed the guy. Who, you know, if it's basketball, feed the score. You know, Steph Curry's hot. Just keep feeding it to him. <laughs> um, and I think it's because people here buy low, sell high. So nobody's saying buy high and never sell, except me. That's what I say. I say buy high and try not to sell. And you're right. Winners win. And, you know, there are exceptions that, of course, prove the rule. We all know times that winners don't win. And you've been a winner many times. And yet in our conversation, you've shared some tremendous loss and sense of loss in that. And so we're all winners and losers all the time. But feed the hot hand or in stock market terms, you know, what are what are businesses that are really changing the world, shaping the world, shaping the future? And that's not going to stop just because their stock doubled in a given month or a four-year period. Apple was an incredible buy, sad to say, the day Steve Jobs died. It had done great under Steve Jobs. But wow, look at what Tim Cook has done. Turns out it's not Steve or Tim. It's, it's a brand. It's a culture. It's a world that wants computers to be simple to use. And yeah. Give mom or dad the iPad and it works. And that's so powerful and winners win. And I, I thank you for saying that, Frank. And you know, NVIDIA has continued to just be a spectacular long-term performer. We had it there in Stock Advisor. The date was December 18th of 2009. The stock was at $15.46. Back then, it's up more than 50 times in value. If you just bought and held all the way through. But Frank, we're never going to gainsay a four-bagger in a pretty short-term period because that was really an eye-opener for you that individual stocks yeah. might be worth paying more attention to. Yeah, and, and, that, and that's what started it. And so from there, I just continued to try to learn, but it's hard. I mean, it's hard to break those old habits. They, they die hard and to really trust it with, you know, with your own money and, and thinking, well, you know, I'm just a coach, you know, I'm just a coach. How am I going to, and, but really just beginning to uh, continue to educate myself and, and understand that uh, the service that, that Motley Fool has provided was, was an opportunity to uh, not just for recommendations, not just for stock recommendations, but really something to learn. And that's probably what attracted me more than anything. You know, I told you my parents are school teachers, were, were retired school teachers. You, you know, I, I want to learn. And so I want to learn how to fish, right? As the old adage goes, I, it's great. I don't mind a nice stock recommendation. And occasionally I'll buy something that I don't know anything about because <laughs> somebody says it. Not very often. 99% of the time, I want to know what I'm doing. <laughs> and uh, and, and, and yeah. for sure, the fool has, has taught me that and is teaching me that. Well, thank you for that, Frank. And you know, you're saying you want to learn. You're helping all of us learn. And you've been so generous with your time this week. And I want to thank you again for it. Let's move to the final key moment. Key moment number three, making you the investor you are today. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm borrowing right from from your from your playbook here from Motley Fool's playbook because this was written somewhere sometime and many and your literature that is out all the time but the key moment number 3 is kind of already alluded to it trading trading away conventional wisdom for foolishness and love it i mean i 
I got to admit, I'm kind of captivated by the language that I see, that I read, that I listen to on Motley Fool. I just, it, it fits me. I don't know. I just like it. I like being a fool. Um, <laughs> and I like trading conventional wisdom. I'm a contrarian probably at heart. Um, some of the, some of the foolishness, some of the conventional wisdom that we traded away and some of the foolish thinking that I've, that I've learned is of course yours, uh, David, this is all, this is all you about making your portfolio reflect the best vision of our future. I know that's kind of a pride and joy to you. I've listened to you say that a, a number of times on podcasts that I've listened to. Um, particularly, I think it was the six, uh, rules for a uh, rule break, uh, for building a rule breaker portfolio. That's um, right. Earlier this year. Thank you. But that's, that's who I want to, that's who, that's what I want to do. And when I look at my portfolios now, that's what I'm doing. You know what I mean? Where, mm. where do I, where's my sense of where things are going as a nation, as a world, where's the future of that with all the interconnectedness of what, what, and who are the companies that are doing that? And who's, who are the leaders? Cause I believe in leadership and, um, so I'm enjoying doing that. I'm enjoying investing because my portfolio is painting a picture and a vision of something that I believe that we can become and that mm. as a nation and as a world, and these companies can help us become that. And I think that's a little bit of the football coach in me and the under, understanding the importance of, Hey, you got to paint a vision for the team of here's where we're going. And then here's the people that it takes to get us there. And these are the, and so the T the companies I'm investing in are the players that I think that can get us to that vision. Um, and so it's exciting. It, it becomes exciting. Um, people that know me know how passionate I am about this. It's the only, I got football and then I got this, you know, and uh, it's, <laughs> the, the, those things make me, but I just two others, I would say just real quickly when I think about some of the foolish thinking that I've come to embrace is we alluded to it earlier, but let your winners run, Frank, Frank, let your winners run. Oh, I was going to say this earlier. Why do you let winners run? Because no man becomes suddenly different from his habits and cherished thoughts. Mm. You know, that mm. quote that's been on my desk since 1985 actually helps inform my investing. They're not going to, you know, NVIDIA is all of a sudden not going to become somebody different. They got great leadership. They got a great model. They got great competitive end. They got great product execution. They're going to keep doing. They got the habits and the people, the cherished thoughts and the habits that go in the right place. That just is, that just makes sense. I never saw that though. Like I would be like, how can I double my money and get out? Mm. Um, let the winners run. And so I've really, it's still hard to do, though. Like, I let it yeah, go. Yeah, because they've already gone up. That, uh, yeah. that, that's what trips most people up. They think, I could have had it there, but now it's there. I'll wait for the dip. And sometimes yeah. I've said, dips wait for dips. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, very infrequently do great companies uh, make a – I mean, it's going to happen from time to time. But um, if you're hoping for that company to trip up on its next earnings report or make a bad product launch, you're probably not going to be right a lot of the time. And it's probably just going to keep going. That's been my experience with the great companies. Well, and I, and now that my children are old enough and they're doing some of their own investing. And so, and I talk to them about this and I'll mention a company that I really like and that I know might connect with 
you know, I had a daughter who worked at Google. So there's something, you know, in the tech world, I, she's very savvy. And so I'm going to mention yeah. some things to her and she'll look at the graph, but it's going up. It's, it's already had a big up. Foolish thinking is add up. Don't double down. You know, that, that would be you. another example, you know, add up, don't double down. I was the classic double down guy. I was the class. Uh, let me find something I think is good. Wait till it gets down there. And now let me double down. I lost some money on it. Let me double down on it. And sometimes it comes back, but usually never as fast as you think. And many times it never does do that because no man becomes suddenly different from his habits and cherished thoughts. Um, So, yeah, trading away conventional wisdom for foolishness. um, That has really made investing fun. But here's the last thing I would say is like so many other things worthwhile, even you always have to keep the pressure on, even if you're a fool, because it's not easy to to maintain the consistency and the discipline that it takes to be foolish. I, I love that, that even kind of oxymoron, the consistency of foolishness, right? Mm-hmm. Um that in that's hard to do. You got to keep the pressure on. You got to, I got to, that's why I listen to podcasts, you know, when I can, um, just to remind myself. And, and I love, I love the team. I love the team at Motley Fool. Um, and I, and I like with players, I, you need to remind the players of the basics all the time. Why? Because they're the basics and they're important and we don't go anywhere if we don't get mm. those right. So, um, and as an investor, I don't want to make that, you know, I don't want to make a decision, you know, without sticking to the principles that I know have worked for me here in the last 10 or so years. And, and I don't mind saying like in 2020 when the, I mean, I, because of many of the picks I was following from the full, um, my IRA account did so out so phenomenal compared to the market. I mean, outperformed them. I told you 15 years of underperformance, 15 years of underperformance for me to be able to last year in 2020, look at that. My portfolio was five times my four in 2020. My IRA portfolio was five times what the S and P was. That just, that's mind boggling to me. And, um, but I got to, but I just know as an investor, I got to keep the pressure on and, you know, just continue to stay disciplined in the, in that approach and continue to play the long game, continue to play the long game, the book, right? Simon Sinek, remember his book, the infinite game. And, you know, he, he's he, like, he'll say every, everybody's playing that there's, there is no finish line. You're like, don't forget the finish line. You know what I mean? Just people yep. in process, people in process. Um, okay, there's quarterly reports and all that stuff, and there, <laughs> there are metrics that we're going to measure and hold ourselves accountable. That's okay. That's good. But that's not ultimately determining the success of the organization. It's, mm. it's helping guide us along the way to something. But it's an excellent book if you ever get the time to read or listen to it. Uh, I don't listen to all this stuff, but that was really good. Yeah. Well, Frank, in conclusion, I think I know why we hit it off so well when we got to meet each other earlier this year, and that's because you have the mindset, uh, and it turns out that same mindset isn't just part of your professional life. It's also part of your life life. 
And it's also part of your investing life. And when you can put investing and business, whatever our business is, and life together, and you have learned, you've been a learning machine, a learning creature throughout your life. And I would add, break the rules along the way. The (laughs) rules that deserve to be broken. I think that uh, I, I've always loved people who go against conventional wisdom. We'll talk about this a little bit in our weekend extra, but you know, always go for fourth down. I like the people who go against expectations because that's usually where value is created, isn't it? In business and investing and in life. If everybody thought one thing, but it turns out they're wrong, and you think this other thing, those are the situations where you have the most leverage and the most possibilities. So, Frank, I want to thank you again so much for being a rule breaker, for sharing your mindset uh, through the course, not just of your own life, but the investing life that you shared with us. And it's an amazing life. I'm excited by the next 30 years of Frank Reich. And we're going to watch, a lot of us are going to watch a little bit more knowingly now and, and sitting up on the edge of our seats to see where you're headed next. I know you have a charity, Not Today, That means a lot to you in Indianapolis. And of course, that's kind of your adopted city now that you're ending the fourth year of being the head football coach in Indianapolis. Would you like to say anything about that at conclusion? Uh, Yeah, thank you, David. Um, Yeah, not today. uh, K-N-O-T, like as a tying a knot, dot org is a foundation that my wife and I started uh, that fights against the sexual abuse and exploitation and trafficking of children. And it's something that we, uh, my wife has long time been passionate about. We have been passionate about. So um, you know, we're going to fight for these children and we're, we're not going to relent and we're, we're not going to stop it at, at any measure. And we're going to pull out every, everything we can do to, to fight on behalf of these children, to, to bring awareness to the issue, to prevent the issue, and then to bring restoration to those who have been affected by it. Mm, thinking through the whole process. And I really appreciate that as well, Frank. And we, we're giving a little bit of short shrift because it's just at the end of our conversation, but not today. I think it's nottoday.org. Do I have that right? Yes. K-N-O-T-T-O-D-A-Y.org. I will be making a contribution this week as well. I encourage anybody who's inspired by Frank's story, uh, all of the stories that he shared with us this week to check out nottoday.org. Frank Reich, thank you so much for joining with us, Fools. Full on, sir. Thanks, David. Full on. You know, the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast spends about a third of our time on investing, about a third of our time on business, the professional world, and about a third of our time on life. The goal is to make you smarter, happier, and richer across all three of those dynamics. And boy, if I don't feel like Frank Reich did that for me anyway this week, and I hope for you too. I want to mention here at close, Frank was generous with his time. We're going to talk only about 15 minutes or so, but we're going to talk football in a very focused manner. I kept finding myself tempted to want to talk some more football, but I realized that's better for a weekend extra. So Frank and I are going to talk some about his life as an NFL head coach and some other thoughts about the game of football. That's going to come to you this Saturday Again, about a 15-minuter. If you're a big football fan, it's a treat. If you're not, hey, we'll talk to you next week. When I talk with Olin Douglas, the head of Motley Fool Ventures, again, soliciting your questions about venture capital at RBI Podcast is the way to petition us on Twitter. Give us your best questions. I'll share some of those with Olin next week as we all get smarter, happier, and richer about venture capital. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. 
and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rulebreaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.